Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 79. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Rand Voitner about the Institute for Field Research. Let's dig a little deeper and sign up for a field school. Rand Boitner received his PhD in anthropology from UCLA in 1998, specializing in Andean, South American, archaeology. Since then, he has taught at USC and UCLA. In 2011, he was the founding director of the Institute for Field Research, an independent academic nonprofit created so students from across the world will be able to participate in field research with leading scholars, regardless of the university where they matriculate. Deploying strong and positive incentives to all parties, the IFR model provides significant funds to scholars and large amounts of credit units to students, producing a strong relationship of excellence between a commitment to research and a commitment to pedagogy. All right, welcome to the Archaeology Show. April, how's it going? It's going really well. Yeah, we're just buzzing along. Cool. Um, I want to take this opportunity real quick before we bring on our guest uh, to let people know. And April, I'm kind of letting you know at this time, too, because this has all happened in the last couple of days. But uh, my friend Richie Cruz, who I record the You Call This Archaeology show on Facebook Live, we're starting to record those and I'm going to be releasing them as biweekly bonus content here on the archaeology show. So we're going to kind of go to a weekly show, but every other week is going to be the recorded version of the You Call This Archaeology show. So you can look forward to that. Um, it's very unedited and very unscripted and a lot of times not even about archaeology. That's why it's called 
that. <laughs> but it's a fun show to do. It's two archaeologists and we have a good time. And you've already heard one in this feed. You've, you've heard a number of them in this feed, but we're going to start trying to make it a little more regular. And on top of that, um, my wife's been wanting to get back into archaeology a little bit. She has her own podcast on the APN that's coming out with its second season in February, Historical Yarns. And we talked about doing a relatively regular-ish just recording with the two of us that we release in the Archaeology Show feed where we talk about archaeology news and events. So April and I will still do interviews, and then we'll have sort of uh, occasional news and events, and then occasional bonus episodes of the You Call This Archaeology Show. Just putting some more stuff into this feed because I fit, I think it fits this audience. And if the audience doesn't agree with me, please send me an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I might be opening up a can of worms there, but <laughs> please send me an email. And then one more little announcement, uh, because you'll hear ad spots on the show as well. The APN has hired its first employee. And her name is Madison. And she's here in Reno. She's going to be working with me. She's our new advertising manager. And her email address, um, she officially starts on January 1st. Her email address will be um, advertising at uh, archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. So if anybody wants to advertise on one of these shows or talk to us about that, then you'll contact Madison and she will help set it up. So I'm pretty excited about that. All right. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction and uh, the biography that we read, our guest today, and we're going to find out a lot more about him here shortly, is Rand Boitner. Rand, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here. All right. So why don't we just start talking about the Institute for Field Research, uh, the IFR. So what is the Institute for Field Research and, and when did it start? The Institute for Field Research started in 2011 as an initiative of a number of uh, basically archaeologists who wanted to make sure that we can break the barriers between universities and allow students from any university to attend top archaeological excavations anywhere in the world. We debated how to call this organization. We thought that we will not just do archaeology, that uh, the idea is right for many disciplines. And uh, we decided mm -hmm. to call it a more generic name, the Institute for Field Research. Uh, starting with archaeology, we started in 2011, as I said, with uh, one field school and 11 students. And uh, this year, we're now offering uh, 62 field schools with hundreds of spaces across disciplines. So we still are primarily archaeology, but also offering geology, paleontology, environmental science, urban planning and urban design, uh, and cultural anthropology programs. So uh, quite exciting. I should throw in a disclaimer and say that I actually met Ran in 2016 when he came out to the Amachi Field School and we decided to become one of IFR's field schools. So I have been working with this program and am incredibly biased in its favor. So that is my disclaimer. It's like on NPR where they tell you that they are funded by whatever they're reporting on. So uh, you may hear some heavily biased statements on my part. <laughs> nice, nice. So, Rand, as a follow up to my first question, universities are commonly known as the uh, the places that start field schools <laughs> and, and they they control the field school. They, they do the advertising for it. They, they do the outreach for it uh, and they run the field school. So how does the Institute for Field Research come into that system? How, when a university says, like, for example, April's program uh, that she's working with at Amache uh, with the University of Denver, 
how does the IFR and the University of Denver work together to get this field school pulled off? How are the responsibilities, I guess, delineated between the two institutions to make this happen? That's a very good question. So the the institution of a field school in archaeology is more than 100 years old. It started mm-hmm. uh, sometime in the early 1900s and became to be a rite of passage for almost every archaeologist that is uh, in practice today. But what was limiting was A, there were no quality controls because these programs were taking time off campus or taking place off campus. And therefore, the university did not assert very good quality controls. Also, students were limited to the specialities or the areas of research of the faculty at their home institution. And third, universities are usually self-insured. And uh, during the last two decades, they began to be very concerned about liability issues of uh, things that happened in the field and started to cut off any kind of sponsorship and any kind of responsibility to field schools. So Mm. the number of university-offered field schools have declined. Okay. And faculty found it extremely difficult to get there, to convince the university to run them or to find a way to, to pay for that or the universities will take a lot of money for liability issues. So the IFR came and tried to do three things. A, we tried to open up field schools to any student, no matter where they matriculate, and using economies of scale, uh, allowing students a huge selection of location, time periods, cultural uh, areas, or research questions where they can find out uh, or where they can find the field school that best fit their interest. Okay. Second, the IFR is not self-insured. The IFR is fully insured, and therefore we can take a lot of liability, and universities are trying to delegate now liability for any off-campus activities to uh, uh, external organization. We're just filling a niche in the current political, economical, and social market for university to work with. But maybe most important is what we what we did, what was very what is very unique to our model is that we decided to adopt the peer review process. And every field school is now peer reviewed the same way that we peer review academic articles Hmm. by the IFR academic board. So we have currently 16 members on our academic board, uh, leading archaeologists from all over the world. And uh, they are coming to the IFR once a year uh, for two days and are reviewing every field school every year. This includes site visits, this includes reports, this includes student evaluations, it includes publication records. So it's a very comprehensive system by which we evaluate the field schools and making sure that it's up to par and that there is a a direct correlation between research and pedagogy that faculty are actually subject themselves to to, to our oversight Mm -hmm. in terms of how they conduct the field school and, and allowing students to participate in the research itself. Okay. So kind of building off of that, I mean, having gone through this process as a faculty member, you end up submitting a bunch of documents, a syllabi, kind of daily plans, write up of all of the safety materials. Can you talk a little bit more about what the benefits as a faculty and program leader are and kind of the materials that we need to feed in to continue making IFR so successful and uh, demonstrating? the quality of our programs. So as some of the listeners may recall, uh, 
Universities were created because of faculty members. Mm-hmm. And it seems that in recent years, administration took over because of liability issues for, for good reasons. But we decided to walk away from that model that universities and, and research institutions are led by administrators. And we decided that the, our organization will be led by faculty and academic concerns. So what, what we are doing is that we're taking the faculty member, putting them on a pedestal, and we are a completely service organization. We are servicing the needs of research, the need of faculty, and the need of students to learn. So that means that we are doing everything that we can that the faculty will focus on conducting their own research, and faculty will focus on conducting teaching. Everything else we are doing and helping the faculty to do. So we do all the marketing, we do all the enrollment. The faculty, of course, have the decision to accept or reject students. It is their prerogative, and we do not interfere with that. But we are creating a system by which faculty can stop applying for grants because they get a lot of money from uh, the students that are attending the field school, and it creates a stream of revenue that is completely dependent on the faculty ability to A, become to be a very important researcher, and B, dedicating time and resources and attention and energy to teaching. So we feel that the model is a win-win-win for everyone, students, faculty, uh, university education and research, because it creates positive incentives for everyone to actually do better archaeology and better teaching in archaeology. I would like to add to that that we see archaeology as a public good, Mm -hmm. and archaeology cannot survive without public support. And one of the best ways to create public support is to bring the public and engage in excavations through field schools. Well, I will tell you, uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because that is the primary mission of the Archaeology Podcast Network, too, is to bring archaeology to the public and raise awareness on on what people are doing and, and kind of pull back the curtain of, you know, the Indiana Jones image of archaeology. <laughs> so that's fantastic. Can anybody approach the IFR and establish a field school or do you have to be attached to an academic institution to do that? So anybody can approach the IFR. Uh, our our process is very rigorous, mm-hmm. but we're not trying to, to discriminate or to isolate or decline people if they are non-traditional archeolo- uh, academics. Mm-hmm. So although we tend to work mostly with faculty at universities or curators at museums, we also work with CRM companies. Uh, we work with independent scholars as long as they are bona fide commitment, committed to archaeological research at the highest level. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And for students, how does this work? So, I mean, part of why a lot of people go on field schools is both to get that experience. I mean, you you can't learn archaeology unless you get in the dirt. You see those methods and practice those methods. But a lot of students are doing this both for the experience, but also for the course credit. Right. You know, programs have a field methods or a field school requirement. So if you're working with groups outside of an academic institution, how are students getting credit? So the IFR is partnering with Connecticut College, which is a private liberal arts college in Connecticut, obviously. Mm -hmm. Students are getting the credit through Connecticut College. The Connecticut College Academic Senate is vetting each of our field schools. Uh, They have two representatives on our board. So they're engaging also in the day-to-day evaluation. And once our board approve a field school, then it goes to Connecticut College and their academic senate approve the, the course as well. So students are getting uh, for our full programs uh, eight semester credit units, which are the equivalent to 12 credit units in a quarter system university. Okay. 
Uh, a quick follow up on that. Our students, like, for example, uh, with the Amache Field School that April's helping conduct this year uh, in 2020, if students sign up through the University of Denver, are they also getting University of Denver credits, but also University of Connecticut um, credits? Or is it is it through the University of Denver or Connecticut? <laughs> uh, so students get credits only through Connecticut College. We do not typically work with universities. Ah. We have some affiliation agreement, okay. but we work with scholars. Got it. So it's better to think the, about the IFR as like a national uh, uh, NSF, National Science Foundation, mm -hmm. than to think about the IFR as a university. We are sort of a hybrid, something that is fairly unique. There aren't that many organizations like, like us that I know. We are both a funding uh, organization and a service organization to the academic community. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Funding was going to be one of my other questions. And I guess we can ask, uh, we can ask another question first because it kind of probably goes into funding, but um, a lot of the IFR programs are shorter, two to three weeks and field schools uh, in the traditional sense are often four, six weeks, something like that. What's the thinking behind the shorter programs? Uh, so we do not call the short programs. So we do have, we do offer two or three weeks programs. We do not call them field schools because they are not field schools. Sure. Uh, they are in the introductory programs. Uh, the idea was that because, as I said, archaeology is a public good and we need the public to come. Students that are currently matriculating are not the only members of public. There are people who are retired. Many teachers need credit units mm -hmm. uh, to have uh, during the summer uh, so they can advance in their profession. So we try to bring these people as well into the fold and introduce them to archaeology. But we do not think that these are full-fledged field schools, so we call them short programs. Students get a lot less credit units. They, if they are coming for four weeks, they get only four semester credit units, and if it's two weeks, they get only two credit units. So these are just gateways into trying and, and, and uh, experiencing archaeology for people that are typically don't have the same amount of time as a uh, as regular, typical uh, student that go to a university. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I've got some... Man, I've got some ideas for you, <laughs> which we should talk about at some point, because uh -huh. uh, this is really cool. Uh, you know, I've been aware of the IFR for a few years now. I think I've I've done some shorter interviews with you at, at uh, conferences and stuff, but it's really it's really developing, and I and I really like that. That's really cool. So, Ran, are you uh, in order to fill out your your field school catalog? Are you seeking out through? Uh, I don't know, advertising and outreach and things like that, trying to find field schools in particular areas? Or do you have enough people coming to you saying, hey, I want to do a field school that it's as much as you guys can manage right now? <laughs> what I'm wondering is with your catalog of field schools, if you say, hey, we've got a hole here, we don't have somebody working in this area this summer, uh, we don't have somebody working in this area, are you are you approaching people and trying to get their field schools into the IFR program? Or is it organic and uh, and filling up? Uh, so it's both. Uh, we are seeking uh, field schools in places when we don't have a lot mm -hmm. and we want to offer students uh, uh, places to go. So, for example, we don't have a lot of field schools in Africa and we're trying very hard to find good programs in Africa. Yeah. On the other hand, we have a lot of people that are contacting us and we are working with anybody who is con communicating with us, trying to figure out if they're of the quality and the caliber of uh, uh, an IFR field school. Awesome. On average, I would say maybe only 40% of people who are starting the process with us end up with having field schools uh, with mm. us. And this is changing now that we have, we've been now in business for about nine years. Mm -hmm. 
And we have now field schools that are running for a long time or scholars that we work with for a long time. Some of the scholars do three years and then take a year or two to write and then come back and do a different uh, program. Mm -hmm. So we are getting full. Uh, in terms of archaeology, we have definitely shortages or, uh, or gaps, especially in Africa and in Asia, particularly in Central Asia that we're trying to fill. Um, Mesoamerica is another place. East Coast of the United States is another place. So it's both. We are trying to reach out. Our board is reaching out. All people are coming to us. Cool. With some of the program gaps that you have, is it just that people aren't running field projects in those areas? Or, you know, I it's really interesting thinking about the landscape of where people are doing field schools. And I could see that some of these areas, maybe they are just aren't field schools being currently run? So when you say uh, field schools are not currently run, it's by U.S. faculty or faculty that work right. at the mm-hmm. U.S. But so there's not that many Africanists in the United States, but there are definitely many Africanists in Europe. Wow. The problem with running with European faculty is that they're not particularly familiar. If they've never worked with Americans, they're not particularly familiar with American sensitivities and American needs. American students tend to be a lot more uh, uh, hardworking, a lot more focused, and a lot more um, uh, grade-driven. European students, they do not pay for their field schools, uh, so they are less demanding in terms of understanding how important each minute is for uh, their their education and for for the, the money that they pay to come to the field school. So it creates, if people did not work with Americans before, it creates a little bit of a gap, and it's not always a good fit. We need to trade them. Uh, there are Europeans that we are working with, especially from the University of Liverpool in England, uh, the University of Bordeaux in France. But these programs tend to take a lot more time to develop, to bring these faculty up to par, to train them how to work with Americans, just because European students are very different than Americans. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference, too, just in the academic systems of the two countries where the way course credits work, the way programs work? Because, I, you know, I know European master's programs are very different than American master's programs and yeah, so most Europeans, and we're talking on the undergraduate level, most Europeans do not pay for tuition. And because in Europe, archaeology is part of humanities and a standalone department and not part of the social sciences and anthropology, they have a very specific view about what archaeology is and how archaeology is practiced. And part of the degree, if, you are, if your major is in archaeology, your major in the Department of Archaeology and the part of your tuition go towards practicum, which is being in the field. So students in Europe, neither in England nor anywhere else in Europe, tend to pay for their field schools. Hmm. Uh, It's part of the tuition and the government or the university, wherever it is, are paying for the field schools. And typically the requirements are a lot less stringent. Their requirements are to be maybe two weeks in the field. And the, the class goes as one class. So they've been together throughout the year and say that they're in the second year of their studies. All of them are going together to what is the university is calling a training excavation. Okay. So they're not coming from different universities. It's the university that is organized. So it's a very different both social and academic environment because the students know each other. The students know the faculty. And it's a continuation of your education. While our field schools are typically students coming from all over the world coming together and meeting for the first time in the field and are coming from various uh, backgrounds academically. 
All right. Well, I think on that note, it's a good point to take our first break and we will come back on the other side and keep talking about field schools with Rand Boytner and the Institute for Field Research. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code TAS. Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 79. And we are talking with Rand Boitner of the Institute for Field Research. So uh, most of what we talked about so far, Rand, was archaeology and archaeology field schools. And the first place I ever saw you talking about this was uh, in a booth at the Society for American Archaeology meetings. <laughs> I can't remember what year it was, but that was the first time. So is the IFR expanding out into other field research disciplines uh, with their field schools? And I don't even know how field schools work in other disciplines. So, you know, we can start there too. <laughs> yes. So the IFR decided two years ago to expand beyond archaeology and go uh, and, and do some experiments in other disciplines. The, mm-hmm. the most natural place to go was, of course, paleontology, because it's fairly similar to archaeology. And this year, we're offering two paleontology field schools and hopefully uh, expanding further in years to come. Uh, the other areas that we wanted to expand is geology. Geology is a very strange, oh, well, not strange. It's very different from archaeology because geologists tend to go to what they call field camp, And in field camp, they're Mm. just being taught geological formation in the field. So there's no research that is being done, but it's just places where students are going and learning on the geography or the geology of the location where they are at. Mm. Our model of research-based field school is not practicing geology. And when we're going to geological conferences and started geology field schools, faculty are very uh, excited about what we have to offer and how we are operating this. And we get a huge response, positive response back and trying to do that. Environmental science is another area that we feel where we should be. And the model is working fairly well. And we're trying to create in the environmental science, it's sort of a hybrid between archaeology and geology. There are field schools, but they tend to be uh, semester long programs and cost a lot of money. So uh, one of our competitors and, a, and an, an exceptionally good uh, organization is the Schools of Field Studies. They operate out of Boston, and they offer semester-long programs where students are going to what we call research stations, live mm. there for about six months, and conduct research on their own. So these are what we call independent studies. 
the way that we see that the students are conducting the same research again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So the students are definitely learning, but they're not helping to advance science forward. Our model is where faculty are going out to the field and are using students and the money from tuition that is given to them to advance and move science forward. And students are participating not in a self-research that has been done many times before, but in new, interesting and intriguing research where they can actually, if they come back, they can find master's thesis or dissertation thesis or can publish uh, the material from the field school that they were before. And, and by the way, many of our students are publishing their first papers or their first posters in, co- in professional conferences based on experiences that they get in their field schools. So this is our model that we're trying to expand and we're trying to export. We have a number of environmental studies uh, field schools. We have one in Vietnam. We have one in Belgium. Uh, we have a, a one in Ireland. Uh, And we're trying to expand those further in the coming years. Building off of this idea of independent research, uh, you know, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know that we've had interviews with Dr. Bonnie Clark and we've talked about the Amati Field School. And we've had a couple of students who have continued on and contacted us that are not, you know, at the University of Denver, but are at other schools and have continued on doing research with things that they worked with on the field school. And this has actually, for us, been perhaps the most interesting and valuable component of being an IFR field school is that we're not just drawing from the same pool of students at one or two schools, but we're drawing from students, this giant pool of students nationally. And so we're getting really diverse, interesting field schools, which is fun. And we're helping, you know, field schools are this interesting moment where we create social connections with other people who may or may not become archaeologists but we're helping kind of foster those relationships. So it's really interesting seeing students go through the field school process with IFR and building off of that to give Rand an actual question. You know, right now, I know field schools are starting to enroll for 2020 field schools. Can you talk a little bit about how as a student you find the IFR, what students should look for and Talk to us a little bit from that perspective. So to find IFR, uh, students find us mostly through either search on the internet. Uh, we get about uh, about 50% of our students are coming because they did a, f- a search on the term field school. And they hit, typically they either hit us or they hit the AIA. And then from the AIA field school site, they come to us. All students are talking with their faculty and their faculty tell them, oh, you want to do a field school, you want to do practice, here is an organization that you should go. The other half are finding us on social media. We have a very active account on uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, but most important for students is Instagram. Hmm. So students are finding us in various ways and coming to our website uh, and starting to look around. The problem for students is that they're operating in an informational vacuum. They don't know which program is better and which program is worse. There are about 400, between 350 and 400 field schools only in archaeology offered each year. And students who are very young and have not been enculturated into the discipline don't really know what is better and what is worse and where they should go. So typically they go to gatekeepers. There are two types of gatekeepers. There, there are the faculty. And then there is the study abroad departments at their home universities. Study abroad departments are much more of an administrative side, and they will look at the 
liability issues, safety, safety record, reputation. Faculty will give students recommendation based on their knowledge of the academic quality of a program and the kind of uh, uh, quality controls, academic quality controls that are in the programs. So students should definitely, when they come to any field school in any discipline, not just the IFR, should consult with these two groups of gatekeepers faculty who knows very well the discipline and study abroad departments who are very good at understanding risk and managing risk and managing risk for the students. The other components that students need to know before they even apply is that whether the credit units will transfer in. Sometimes students are transfer students and if you are in a research one university, let's say UCLA or UC Berkeley or uh, University of Colorado, Boulder, and you are uh, a transfer student, that means that you spend two years in a community college. If you're transferring eight semester credit units or 12 quarter units in as part of your major, then the universities will feel that you didn't take enough classes at their home institution and will decline to transfer all the credit units. If you are uh, a statistics major and you take an archaeology field school, most likely the credit units will not go towards your degree or your major, but will go towards GE. So you need to understand how the credit units will be transferring. Some universities, it's very rare, but University of Southern California is one of them, just do not allow students to transfer credit from anywhere mm -hmm. in because they want the students to pay full tuition at their home institution, and they want to have full control of what the students are doing. So if that's not their students and not their program, they do not allow the credit units to be transferred in. Uh, students can petition, and faculty are fighting very hard in these institutions, but there are very few like those. Uh, all the institutions we work with, all the way from Harvard to Santa Monica Community College, except the credit units, and it really depends on three elements. The students, uh, whether the students is a transfer student or not, how relevant is the field experience to the student major, and that determines whether it goes toward the major requirement or the GE requirement, and the GPA of the student. Typically, students get uh, either A's or B's in field schools. It's very difficult to get a C in a field school because you're being evaluated based on your attempts to work and engage in science, not your output. Right whether you publish or a paper. This is a training program. So you're being graded based on your attempt to be trained, not on the outcome of whether you're a good trainee or not. That will be determined later on if you will move on on your academic career. So students, if they have very low GPA, universities will sort of balk a little bit about transferring the, the credit units because they know that the students is typically going to get higher grades and they don't want to, to match it. So what students need to do is before they do anything, print out the syllabus of the field school and go with the syllabus to their undergraduate advisor or the graduate advisor, whoever it is that uh, they're working with, so they can vet and tell them how the credit units will be transferred into the university. What they need to make sure is also that the registrar will agree to do that. Every university have what is called articulation officer, and in a big university, your undergraduate advisor will be able to direct you and tell you exactly what can be done. In smaller universities, you just need to navigate that. So you need to talk both with uh, the faculty and get to understand how the department, your department is going to accept the credit units. And then with the articulation office, 
to understand how the credit units are going to be transferred into your own record. Okay. And with 2020 rapidly approaching, this podcast actually releases right before the new year. So with 2020 rapidly approaching, is the process to get into these field schools, because I know there's probably a limit to the number of students they can take, is it very competitive? Is it too late to get into some of these or or can people still apply for the 2020 season? So it depends on the field school. Some field schools tend to be more popular than mm-hmm. others. So for example, uh, Greenland Arctic Vikings had last year 150 wow. applicants and we had only eight Jeez. spots. <laughs> So it, this was a very competitive field school, but field schools in, in uh, different areas have different waiting lists or, or, or different. So, so it's not, there isn't any statement that I can make across mm-hmm. the board. All I can say is that if students want to go to a field school, they better act earlier rather than yeah. later because the popular field schools are getting filled very fast. These tend to be European field schools, uh, South American field schools, and anything that has to do with Egyptology. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just a kind of a follow-up to that. When, you know, people have to apply to get their field school into the IFR, uh, approximately what time frame do you think do most field schools become available for application? Uh, looking at like a North American summer. Yeah. So uh, we open application every year in November okay. 1st. So that's when uh, the application are opening. We're trying for next year to open August 15th because a lot of semester-based universities are coming back on campus at the end of August and students are starting to look then to see what opportunities that they have. Uh, But so far, we always open November 1st and that's when students should uh, start to apply. But if students want to have their choice location, they should apply Mm -hmm. now. They can decide, they can apply to more than one field school. Unlike uh, most universities, we do not charge students an application fee. So students can apply to more than one program and then decide later on if they're admitted to which program they want to go. And they can secure, at least in the case of the IFR, the only way that you can secure a space is by paying the deposit. And if the students are doing that before uh, mid-January, we have what we call early admission and they pay only 60% of the uh, the deposit. So instead of $500, they pay only $300 to secure a space wow. in a program. So as students are doing this, I mean, I know from our program, you can look online, you can see our syllabus, we've written up testimonials, we have pictures, and, you know, we're generally pretty open if students have questions or issues they want to make sure would work. Are most field schools kind of structured similarly where there's a broad base of information that students can read and look at and information about the different instructors so they know who are the faculty, what do the faculty do, and what have been previous students' experiences? Yes. So the IFR website is standardized across all field schools and all the information that is provided for one field school is provided for other field schools. We, of course, have uh, different personalities of field school directors. Some are more passive and others are more active. But a requirement, an IFR requirement of all field school directors is that they will be really embracing the idea of research through teaching or teaching through research. And uh, we demand that from any field school. So we will not admit and we will not work with any faculty who is not keenly interested in having the student participate in her or his field school uh, in, in a very active way. So Amachi is not unique. All of our field schools are the same uh, at the minimum, at, at, at least this level of enthusiasm to support and bring students in. 
wonderful. That's kind of a build off of that. Are there certain programs that you think are just really unique or interesting or any that you want to highlight? Because, you know, I know that anytime you work with a project, you sort of get favorites. No one has favorite children, but everybody has a favorite child. So, um, you know, are there programs <laughs> that you really want to highlight because they're new or they're just doing something really special and interesting? Yeah. You know, one of the programs, a, a, a new program that we're working with is in Italy. It's a, it's a, in Coronata. And what is unique about this program, traditionally, uh, when archaeologists were looking at the arrival of Greeks uh, into Italy, the colonization of uh, the Med- Mediterranean by, uh, by Greeks, people thought that the Greeks came in as, as colonies and colonized the, the, the periphery. What we find out in Coronata, and it's the only site that is preserved and has early Greek pottery embedded inside what we call indigenous population, showing that, uh, that the Greeks did not arrive as colonies, but it was a much more uh, nuanced and longer process. And the program is run by an Italian scholar who works at the French University, and the co-director is from the University of Michigan. And it's just a spectacular place to be, spectacular archaeological question, really challenging the the existing understanding of what a major part of of the evolution of Western civilization happened, the way that it happens. And the faculty members, the field school director, are just awesome, awesome people. I, I... when I did the site visit, I was fortunate enough to do the site visit. I was supposed to be there uh, two days visiting with them, and I stayed almost a week hmm. because it's such a fascinating site. And the preservation is so amazing. You have architecture, you have ceramic, you have metals, you have even organic materials. You don't typically find stuff like that in southern Italy. So that's definitely an interesting uh, project that I would like to highlight. Another new project that I would like to highlight is uh, the French Polynesia uh, field school that we have in Morea. This is an epigenetics field school where we are going to look at the differences in genetic uh, composition and the relationship between genetics and culture, what we call co-evolution, which is very much on the cutting edge of evolutionary theory today, when we have a faculty member from the University of uh, UC San Diego who is going to go and both collect uh, 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 verbal testimonials and take DNA from a uh, local population and try to work out the Lapita uh, expansion and post-Lapita expansion of different groups that are coming from Micronesia across the Pacific Islands. I think these are spectacular research questions. Uh, so these are both in archaeology or archaeology-related. Uh, I would like to finally highlight a program that... Uh, not relevant to archaeology, but I still think a spectacular program. Mm-hmm. And that's our program in Vietnam. Uh, that program takes place in the city of Yu. Uh, your listeners, if they're young, will not mm-hmm. remember the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. But during the Tet Offensive of the Vietnam War, Yu was a major battleground between American Viet Cong and North, Amer- and, and North Vietnamese forces. And it's a sacred space in, in Vietnam. And what we're doing there is that our PI, who was the, uh, the chair of landscape architecture at the University of Southern California and now moved uh, to, the, to Belgium to work at the University of Belgium, are running an environmental studies program there. When they're trying to work with the local authorities and build sustainable cities 
out of the Vietnam War and out of the dramatic economical development in Vietnam in ways that combine water, uh, trees, vegetation, and humans in a sustainable way. I cannot recommend uh, I cannot recommend strongly enough how amazing the faculty members are for this particular program. Uh, they're just gracious, uh, happy people. It's a wonderful country to work in, in a very, very important site and important city for American heritage. So even though this is not straightforward an American program, mm -hmm. it's just an amazing place to be and an amazing contribution that we can make as young Americans to a continuation of American relationship with this particular site in Vietnam. Awesome. That's, uh, that's so cool. Um, and I was just looking on the uh, IFR website before we came on today and man, there are such a really, uh, such a vast array of field schools all over the world and uh, in different disciplines and, and different areas of study. And, uh, and the website's set up really well to help you kind of drive down what you want to focus on uh, and where you want to do it. So um, check out the website at ifrglobal.org and we will have that link in the show notes. And Rand, really, thanks for coming on today and telling us all about the Institute for Field Research. My great pleasure. And thank you both, April and, uh, and, and Chris, for all the work that you're doing to support uh, archaeology and support science. It's really, really important to do that right now. I'm just going to say that the IFR is a phenomenal program. And hopefully some people listening to this podcast who are starting to think about field school will go over and check out the site and maybe sign up for some of these programs. You know, I think it's truly an amazing opportunity to see all of the different things that archaeologists are doing and think about your future and what kind of research you can do if you become an archaeologist. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, with that, we're going to call this segment right here. April and I are going to come back in segment three and just kind of wrap this up a little bit. So we'll be back shortly for that. And again, thank you, Rand, for coming on and check out the ifrglobal.org website and sign up for your field school today. And happy new year if this is where you stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> All right. Back in a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 79, and we're just going to wrap up the uh, uh, this discussion real quick. It's not going to be a full segment, but we've got some good information to give you. First off, I'd like to mention, uh, Rand mentioned after we hit stop recording, <laughs> that uh, he forgot to mention scholarships. So the IFR does scholarships, and he said, and this is a phenomenal number, 14% of students that did field schools with the IFR last year, I think he means this year, probably 2019, got money from the IFR. And that's not like in addition, you know, that has nothing to do with other funding sources or anything else they applied for scholarships and got money through the ifr to do their field schools he didn't mention whether that was a full ride or a partial payment or something like that but 14 percent of students actually got that money so that is that's pretty awesome i like that yeah no it's really nice to have that yeah we had some students apply for scholarships and it's it's nice to know that there are ways to get help to go on field school because i know that finances often hold people back the other thing nice thing with the ifr is the price for field schools is listed so you can shop around and find one that's within your budget if that's a concern that you have. Nice. So what, uh, April, one question I wanted to ask you, why did Amache decide to go with IFR when you've been running it with University of Denver for so long? Well, you know, Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Clark really 
was interested in this. Uh, she made a lot of those initial decisions, but ran came out and looked at the field school and we thought about how to reach more students. I think that increasing mm-hmm. enrollment and being able to reach a new pool of students were really some of our motivation. We, you know, obviously University of Denver students are great um, and we've loved working with them, but you know, you, you want to make sure that you have enough students to have a good dynamic field school. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that one way to increase awareness of the field school and increase our enrollments was to become an IFR field school. And it has been, it's been great. You know, 2018 was our first year. We'll be an IFR field school again in 2020. And we had a wonderful pool of students apply and we, we had a really great field school in 2018 with very interested students and a really, it felt great, right? Um, sometimes you have field schools and people don't get along or, but the dynamic of the field school <laughs> is wonderful. And I think our students enjoyed meeting students from all these other universities and schools, you know, I think from Arkansas all the way to California, right? So we covered the entire country in different schools and that's, that's pretty unique and fun. Nice. Yeah, that is really cool. Um, So I think that's probably all we have uh, for this. So we're going to have a couple announcements now. Um, I just want to remind people, since this uh, episode is coming out just before the new year, I will be at the Society for Historical Archaeology meeting. um, And I think April's going to be as well. I'm going to be tied up in the tech room, which sounds like it's in a different room than the the exhibit hall this year. So go find the tech room. I'm going to be there Thursday and Friday. However, if you're there early, uh, I didn't know what I was going to be doing for this. So I had to book my travel like months ago. (laughs) And I'm coming in on Tuesday, which means I have all day Wednesday to just kind of experience Boston. So if you're there early too, and uh, you know, want to go do something, then let me know. But also the tech room only runs Thursday and Friday. So I'm off all day Saturday too. I'm, I'm hoping to be booking some interviews with people there. Um, I've got a few scheduled or at least planned already. I wouldn't say scheduled, but um, I've got a few ready to go. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun, fun event. So definitely check that out. Um, and then I just renewed my SAA registration for the year. And uh, I think April has an announcement around that. Yeah. Well, I will also be at both of those conferences. So Mm -hmm. I will see you there, Chris, and hopefully lots of other people (laughs) who are our listeners. So long, long ago, back, I think about 36 episodes ago, 46 episodes ago, Chris and I did a podcast on attending conferences and the SAAs found it. And you know, thought Chris and I were just absolutely brilliant. And they reached out to me as one of their student members to see if I would be willing to do an online seminar for them. So if you're an SAA member, you probably get all the emails about different seminars. Uh, If you're not a member, you can still access these seminars online, I believe. But they are one to two hour online talks, basically on different topics. And I am going to be doing one on January 22nd from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on attending conferences. That will basically be a 101 beginner's guide uh, mirroring a lot of the things that we talked about in the podcast, but much more specifically oriented to the SAAs on what do you do? What is a conference? How do you attend a conference? How do you get involved at the SAAs? What are different ways that, especially as student members, 
or new members you can find to participate and covering just all of the weird nitpicky things. Hopefully it will be really, really useful. So if you're a listener and you're thinking about attending a conference for the first time, hopefully I'll uh, see you at this online seminar. I will say that when they contacted me, I was like, why? Oh, oh, my podcast. Oh, Chris and I talked about this. <laughs> it's so long ago. I'd forgotten that we did that episode. So it says something about the longevity of the show and the short term nature of my personal memory. So. Yeah, that was almost two years ago. It was January 13th, 2018. And it's uh, uh, episode 33. So I'll link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to go back and listen to it. Yeah, it's a it's a great, really helpful episode. And um, I'll be talking about a lot of those same things. Awesome. Well, I will be sure to uh, attend that session if I can and uh, critique you on what you say and uh, heckle you from the audience. So, you know, uh, I, I encourage others <laughs> to join and, and do the same. <laughs> I believe that you can digitally heckle me because people can submit questions <laughs> during the talk. So. We'll see how it goes. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks, April. And again, a big thanks to Rand Boytner of the uh, IFR. And go check out the links in the show notes, ifrglobal.org, if you haven't signed up for field school this year. Or if you just maybe think you're going to have a few weeks off because they have some shorter programs that are, you said, are like two to three weeks. Um, they don't necessarily call them field schools, but it might be a fun thing to do. If you're a CRM archaeologist, maybe you can plan to take a few weeks off and go on this thing, increase your skill set. Um, I don't know. Or just maybe call that your vacation for the year so maybe you don't need the credits i don't know but it would be kind of a fun thing to do so yeah check that out so that's it for now uh again thank you april and we will see you guys next time thanks for listening to the archaeology podcast we hope you enjoyed it you can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things and keep listening to the archaeology podcast network have an awesome day this show is produced and recorded by the archaeology podcast network chris webster and tristan boyle in reno nevada at the reno collective this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.